What a day. What a day. We need a fire chief down here because I have a feeling this is going to get hot in here. The spirit's going to fall and we're going to maybe have a little Pentecost going on here this morning. You know, Church of the Red Door, I am so... It's such a privilege to be affiliated with you. And I say affiliation, it sounds like a organizational, corporate kind of a word. Family, I'm, I'm, I'm privileged to be family with you. Watching you and your heart for Angel Tree and all the other things. You know, I look around this valley and I look at the engagement with so many of you with Coachella Valley Rescue Mission and the Narrow Door and Mama's House and Fellowship Christian Athletes and Young Life. I, you know, I sign the checks. I see the the funding go through and then just signed a check for Young Life the other day and watched your giving and your generosity and then turn that towards the advancement in all these different areas. And especially Angel Tree this time of year, you know, to, to imagine, James just says, what is true and undefiled religion? It's visiting the orphan and the widow in their distress. And that is uh, just exactly what Tracy said, you know, here's, a, here's an inmate incapable of loving his own children. Uh, we get stereotypes in our mind, but these are, these are men, uh, and obviously who we deal with, who have failed in various areas, and, but they still have a passion for their children. And imagine having children and being incapable of giving them a hug, or in our case, even a gift. And to be that surrogate for them to then go in and be able to do that is, well, it's, if you want to say religion, you know, I kind of usually say religion is man's attempt to get to God, and it is, and Jesus obviously was God's attempt to get to man, which we'll be discussing again here this morning. But what is true, if it's semantics, I realize, but what is it? It's that. It's You can't get paid back from that. I mean, you know, there's a lot of things that we do in life that we, it's kind of a quid pro quo. We know that we may receive some kind of something coming back our way. If you go to the the poor widow or the poor guy in prison who's in, uh, not able to extend and really be a citizen, there's no repayment for that. That's real faith. That's beautiful. That's a beautiful thing to be involved in. So anyway, I'm just proud to be your family. You can pride goeth before a fall. So I hope I don't fall down up here, but I don't care. I don't care. I'm, gonna, I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you as a family and to watch. I mean, I was just watching the people come in and bring their gifts and all the stuff that they had, you know, gone out and purchased for these kids. Uh, We'll never know the full impact of that, and that's okay. We do a lot of things that we'll never know the full impact of. We just do what we do what we're told to do because why we're serving King Jesus, and that's what we're going to talk about. Let's pray, Lord Jesus. We thank you for this morning. <clears throat> what a what a great thing to be here. What a great thing that we can meet without having to hide and and some clandestine group off in some corner because of maybe a government that's intolerant of what we're doing here. We we have the privilege, at least for now in this wonderful United States of America to be able to meet and think and talk about you and talk about your kingdom. And so, Lord, would you give us, as we always pray, before we open your word, Lord, I, I, am, I am not up to the task. I am in desperate dependence on your Holy Spirit to give us wisdom and insight, real insight. And uh, I want you to strike a chord in us as we go through these scriptures. We're going to read the Bible again today. We're going to think deeply about uh, what all the prophets had seen as it relates to, well, this not only this time of year as it relates to his coming, but in this case, his exit as well. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Okay, so for those of you who weren't here last week, we started to go into something that many refer to as the triumphal entry or Palm Sunday or whatever it is that you view. And if you know anything about historically, and maybe you don't know a little what that means, but it's Jesus about a week before he's going to go to the cross and he enters Jerusalem and it is so packed with meaning. I can't express to you how meaningful the actions he's taking are to the global plans of the creator of the universe. I know that's hard to believe. I know, I know some of you sit out there and you go, we are just such a tiny little dot in the totality of the cosmos. I mean, if it was just our solar system, we'd be insignificant. In light of maybe two trillion galaxies, how can this be? How can this be? How can this be the seminal moment of all of human history? 
in such in something that appears like well some inconsequential little arm of a spiral galaxy out in the middle of God knows what literally God knows what are there other are there other universes are there other, I mean it's so immense as to sometimes us feel what makes us feel so inconsequential and then for me to stand up here and say this is the most consequential moment in all of human history is kind of a grand statement but if it's true and many of us here today and maybe even watching believe that it's true or maybe you're still wondering if it's true but I want to show you some things today. It's, it's very easy for me just to read this passage and say this was Palm Sunday and, and maybe make a few comments about it and go on. But I think for us to think deeply about this and to be persuaded on such a profound plane to go look what has been said, look what had been prophesied, look in the context in which Jesus comes and it gives you deeper insight and it makes your faith grow. <clears throat> That's why we're just camping out here for a while. We're going to finish it next week as well, but we're going to look at this triumphal entry in a very triumphant way, but also in a very inglorious, humble way from the world's perspective. But now in retrospect, we can look back and, t and say, wow, what a glorious act. The creator of the universe came as a suffering servant. <clears throat> so let's read again the story, and then I want to look quickly at the Davidic covenant, and I want to take you back where we were last week so that you can more fully understand the actions and activities of Jesus. <clears throat> Luke chapter 19, verse 28. After he had said these things, Jesus, he was going on ahead and going up to Jerusalem. And when he approached Bethphage and Bethany, again, places of great humility, in other words, he was not staying at the, uh, the Waldorf Astoria, <clears throat> near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village ahead of you, and there, as you enter, you're going to find a colt tied on which no one has yet said, untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them, and as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, well, why are you untying it? And they said, the Lord has need of it. They brought it to Jesus, and they threw their coats on the colt, put Jesus on it, and as he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. All four Gospels, as I alluded to last week, cover this particular act called what we refer to as the triumphal entry, and they give different details. There were actually two. There was uh, there were a donkey and a colt, a younger and then an older, and there were two involved here. Some said they threw down palm branches. Here it just says they threw down their coats. But if you put them all together, you get a little bit more complete picture. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles that they had seen. Now, why were they rejoicing? This has to be the guy. This is the guy. And now from our perspective, we don't understand why they thought this was the guy. But Israel had been expect in a state of expectation, at least those who were observant, a state of expectation that God was going to fulfill his promise to put a forever king on the throne. There was going to be a sovereignty involved here with a the throne. There was going to be a nation uh, involved in this. And there was going to be this king that's coming, this king that's coming. And so based on the miracles that they had seen, this is the moment. For, for the last thousand years, since the time of David, each successive king, there would be some build. It started with Solomon, as we'll look at. It would start to build, is this the Messiah? Is this the Mashiach? Is this one that's finally going to put an end to the struggle and the strife, not only with our neighbors, but with us internally in our own souls? Will there be a place where Israel now is embraced in the context of the Messiah. Again, even though the prophets had seen it, it was going to involve the entire world. It wasn't just going to be uh, Israel's king. It was going to be the world king, but they couldn't see that even though the prophets had seen it. It took the Christ event, the cross event, and then really us to be able to see, wow, the whole world is celebrating this, this Jesus person. Could he have been the long-awaited Messiah? 
Each successive king, Solomon, but then we get to 1 Kings chapter 11, and, and the Bible simply says that God says, I'm going to rip the kingdom away from you, but not in your lifetime as it goes down the road. It couldn't have been Solomon as we look at the Davidic covenant in a minute. But each successive king, it would build, could this be the one? And then failure after failure after failure after failure, and some to the point of great idolatry and cruelty and some very wicked kings that are unpacked for us on the pages of the Old Testament or the Tanakh. So they thought this was him. This was the guy. We've seen the miracles. This is going to be the one. Why he's on a donkey, we don't know. But this could be him. And they were singing, and they were quoting Psalm 118. Blessed is the king. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And yet some of the Pharisees, the religious leaders in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. In some ways, and I know this may be a stretch, but I was in Israel one time and we're just, you know, you're among the stones, you know, you're, you're, you're getting all the historical unpacking now archaeologically discovered in the last 70 years that perfectly and beautifully corroborates what many of the skeptics and critics and, uh, uh, had argued against even the Davidic dynasty and whether Pilate existed or whether that he was, you know, the, one of these rulers during the time of Jesus in stone by stone. The unpacking as Israel had become a nation again and their archaeological diligence give credence to the every word being inspired, not just some mythological afterthought to create a religion, as many on the street still believe. Your friends, my friends, many here in the Coachella Valley, it just, you know, it's some mythological fabrication hundreds of years after the fact. Well, the stones are crying out. The stones are crying out in my view. Now, I want to take you again, uh, we're just going to lay this foundation quickly, 2 Samuel chapter 7, because it's everything we're going to look at is predicated on this Davidic covenant. Now, what is that? Now, there are any number of covenants that are given in the Bible, starting back in the Garden of Eden, the Edenic covenant, the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, which is the, and the Mosaic covenant, which is the law, and obviously we're going to get here the Davidic covenant, but eventually now we're living under a new covenant that Jesus inaugurated in his blood. The promise to David, the King David, is so significant to this moment, I do not want to just gloss over this. I want to take you back and show you how prolific the authors were and inspired as they continued, God speaking through these prophets, continued to reiterate this forever king, this forever king is coming to sit on the throne of Israel. He's coming, he's coming, he will come. And then we're giving some strange things that accompany that, as we'll see this morning, like a shepherding, we saw that in Jeremiah 23 last week, a kind of a shepherd king, and I don't know, it just gets very opaque, and I think that's why so many of my Jewish friends have just kind of quit waiting, you know, and I don't really think about a Messiah coming anymore, because as Jesus said on the cross, you know, it's finished. In other words... There are a few Orthodox groups out there that saw Rabbi Schneerson, who's since passed away. They thought he maybe he was the one, or he used to put billboards up in Israel and things and around the United States. And they're occasionally, but most of my Jewish friends are. I, and I remember being on a plane one time. I was getting on a plane. I think I was flying to, uh, I don't know where I was going, New York or Atlanta or somewhere. And I remember getting on a plane. I had some Orthodox Jews sitting in front of me that had been in Palm Springs, and I just kind of stuck my head up right in between, you know, and I, they, I thought, well, they're gonna probably going to throw me off the plane, but I stuck my head up there, and I go, may, may I ask you a question? Are you still anticipating Messiah to come? And I just kind of looked bewildered. I, it wasn't really something that they're... It's more of thinking about the social structure and morality and things like that, but they're not really thinking about a king coming. Many of them are not. <clears throat> This was the promise. This was the promise of the Davidic covenant. Let me read again. Allow me to read. And boy, and next week, this is going to be impact in a way that I think it's going to blow your mind. Blow your mind. 
because it's a little, how do, we, how do we figure this out? So verse 12, when your days are complete, this is Nathan speaking to David, and you lie down with your fathers, David, I will raise up a de- your descendant after you. That's why it's so, so important we get the New Testament that Jesus was in the line of David. That's why we have the genealogies in both Matthew and Luke extensively because it's trying, they're trying to make the connection with Jesus to the Davidic line. It, because if he wasn't, we can discount him immediately. This is a descendant of David. Your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. Okay, so... There's going to be a kingdom. There's going to be a nation kingdom here. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, and I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. And this is what we're going to really address next week. When he commits iniquity, it's very confusing, right? Uh, there's a, in Hebrew, there's a hephil stem that's involved in that. This, how do you unpack this Hebrew word, uh, Asher, and it can be when or if, but even if it's if, it's very straight struggle because in the Hebrew, there's no punctuation and is that's how it should read. And you, then you go back, you go back to the Masoretic text or do you go back to the Septuagint and uh, wake up your neighbor now, but you get the point. I mean, this is just so complex to try to unpack you know, when or if he commits iniquity, does he not know? Does it, if it's if, if it's when he commits iniquity, then is Jesus with sin? Is this even referring to Jesus? And what we alluded to last week is that in some ways it's clearly talking uh, about Solomon, but it has a dual fulfillment and it clearly goes beyond Solomon, as we'll see a little bit more this morning, and on into some mystical future, future from the line of David that has to fulfill so many different things, so many different facets of what this king would be, and his entering in on a donkey gives us great insight rather than a horse. So again, as I alluded to last week, ambassadors would come in on the backs of donkeys as a, as, as a, to, to a nation to say, we're coming in peace. I have a peace agreement here. Kings, conquering kings would come in on horses. Jesus, very intentionally, as Zechariah, as we'll see more next week, Zechariah had specifically seen, Jesus comes in very intentionally on the back of a donkey. And yet, and this is the whole title of the series, he definitely needed a parade because he had just come in as a humbly, humble servant. They would have thought, well, he wasn't our long-awaited king. He was a martyr, but he was not a long-awaited king. If he'd only come in as a king, then it would have been for a temporary maybe moment that they could have overthrown the Romans, and then he would die a normal death, and he would just be another prophet, and then Israel's back in their own position. But as we're going to see, this is forever. This is forever. This is a forever king. He says, when he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men, but my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul. He said, well, this is Solomon, but it's not because it says they've got, your kingdom's going to be ripped away from you. Why? Because he had, had multiplied wise for himself and complete uh, disobedience to the, the law of the king shouldn't multiply wives for themselves, and, and he'd, he'd, all, idolatry had come in, and they were worship, worshiping the Astaroth, and, which was kind of a sexual fertility goddess, and, you know, and all this other, and Milcom, and all these other foreign idols, because he married all these women, these foreign women, and then they brought in idolatry. This couldn't be him. That's my point. That's what God was saying. But my loving kindness shall not depart from his. I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. And we're going to get a little bit more deeply into this. Are you ready? We're going to roll. Are you ready? Hang on to your bootstraps. Strap in. We're going to get going here. And these are a few... These are a few scriptures that I had written down. I said, we just can't just jump off on here. People, we need to understand how clearly the prophets had seen this. So again, we finished with Jeremiah 23. I want to 
push ahead just a little bit to Jeremiah chapter 33 this morning. That chapter 33, we're just going to, I'm going to take you through Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, and Amos, just four places where there is a reiteration, uh, there's a restatement, a re-promising, if you will. Now, this is where it brings it right into the 21st century. In fact, I will say this is where it brings it right into the last few months. Because it involves something, if, you, if your newsfeed is anything like mine, when I pull up my newsfeed in the morning on my phone, the first five news articles are about the Israeli-Gaza conflict. Every morning. It never deviates. The first five, and they typically will have four supporting one and then one kind of, you know, kind of like the political deal at the end. If it's a Democratic president, they give the response by the Republican or the Republican president, they give the response by the Democrat. Try to kind of, it's not very balanced right now, but it's right at the head of it. And what's fascinating is that some of these prophecies are being manifest right before our eyes. And it's staggering. Okay, so let's go again. Jeremiah chapter 33. I need to quit talking and just go to Jeremiah chapter 33. And we're going to look at just a couple of verses here. And see, what is Jeremiah saying? Again, Jeremiah, for those of you who don't know much about, uh, you know, how the Bible or who, when these guys were taught, Jeremiah's about 600 years before the time of Jesus. He saw the decline into this final, you know, destruction of the temple under the Babylonians and been prophesying about it. But if in the midst of all the horror that Jeremiah has seen coming their way, there was a promise of a new covenant in Jeremiah 31. There was saying, I, this nation in Jeremiah 31 is going to remain a nation before me forever as long as the stars are in the sky and, and, and all of you know, Kepler's laws and everything from the way the, uh, the, everything orbits one another. It, it, as long as that order's in place, that fixed order, these Jewish people will maintain their identity before me forever, which alone is a phenomenal fulfillment of prophecy. As I've said to you many times before, there are no other, none, no, none of these other Semitic tribes even exist. Nobody identifies as these part of this tribal affiliation, except for the Jews. And God said that would be the case. But in Jeremiah chapter 33, listen to what he says, starting in verse, I'm going to read 14. I think it'll come up behind me, maybe 15. It says, behold, days are coming. Okay, so bad news, bad news, but wait a minute, days are coming. When I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Jesus. So there's good news coming for Israel. And then he says this, verse 15. In those days and at that time, verse 15, I will cause, I will cause a righteous branch of David. So now if, if you know 2 Samuel 7 and the Davidic covenant, immediately you will be thinking, oh, righteous branch. Maybe this is the descendant. Is that who he's talking about? This forever king? to spring forth and he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. Well, see, that's what they were expecting. They were expecting him to execute justice and righteousness on the earth. They're going to take over the Romans. They're the bad guys. We're the good guys. There's only one problem with their perspective on that that if God does execute his justice, they'll be included in the wrath. That's the problem. People all the time say that. I said, do you want, you, want God, you want God to come down in justice right now? I promise you, you don't want God to come down in justice right now. Certainly not in a place where when you didn't know him, or maybe you have family members that don't know him, or you, you have... You have close friends who don't know him. Do you really want him to come down in justice and righteousness now? But he was going to execute justice and righteousness. And here's the twist, the plot that none of the prophets could have seen. God is going to execute justice and he's going to do it on his own son. Well, they didn't see that. They just thought they were going to take over the Romans. Okay? And then we read on and it says, Verse 16, in those days, Judah shall be saved and Jerusalem shall dwell in safety. And this is the name by which she shall be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Okay, let's press forward. Ezekiel, the next prophet. 
Isaiah, Jeremiah, and then the lament of lamentations, and then Ezekiel. And I want to take you to chapter 34. Please allow me just to read these scriptures. Let them just flow over your brain. There's a lot of, you know, these, again, we're so grateful that the Septuagint, which is a Greek version of the Hebrew Bible, was codified close to 200 years before the time of Jesus by one of these Egyptian heads of state who brought together in Alexandria 70 different, well, actually 72. It was six from each tribe of the 12 tribes and said, will you take the Torah or the first five books, the Pentateuch, and give us a working translation in Greek from, you know, your God, Ptolemy. And, and so they, they said yes, and they came together, and that's where we get the LXX version. They kind of shortened that, derived that to 70, which is LXX. And, and, and then that's the, the Septuagint. Some say Septuagint, but it, many say Septuagint. The Septuagint there is not just the Torah, but then over the ensuing years, they continued to take the prophets, and they would translate that into Greek. And much of the New Testament then references back to the Septuagint. And then over the next few hundred years, uh, then we have what's called the Masoretic text. But this is the Septuagint. And this is important because as we see this, we'll see this unpacking of, again, the same thing. What are these prophets seeing? Ezekiel chapter 34, I'm going to read verses starting in 23 here, okay? He had just said, contextual, contextually, he had just told uh, Israel again. He says, here's what we're going to do. He says, I'm going to take away those shepherds that are muddying the waters with all their teaching. They're not willing to drink this water. They're just muddying it with their feet. And I'm going to put a new shepherd over them. Now we're kind of a shepherd, kind of a shepherd king. What is this? Who's, who's this? Who's this coming down the pike? Now, Ezekiel is writing this after the Babylonian captivity. He is actually in captivity by the river Kabar, and he's actually writing through these visions that God's given him about a future reality. And he says this, Then, verse 23, I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David. You can't read that literally what they were trying to do in the New Testament. He says, David's still buried. You, you may, sorry to be so graphic, but go bit, dig him up. You'll still find, he, he's still in the ground. His body's in the ground. Who's this talking about? It's talking about this shepherd king. Who is this person? And, I will, and he will feed them. And he will feed them himself and be their shepherd. And verse 24 says, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them, and I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will make a covenant of peace with them and eliminate harmful beasts from the land. Now, I don't want to get too deep into this because there's a lot of metaphor here, but very often the Gentiles are referred to as beastly. Often this beast picture refers to the nations, not too different from what Jesus even said for the Syrophoenician woman who wanted uh, some healing for her daughter, and he said it's not good to throw the crumbs of the children's or the crumbs from the children's bread to the dogs. Now, was Jesus being harsh and cruel? No, relative to them not understanding and living in the world of idolatry that they lived in, they were like beasts. They were like beasts, and that they are going to live securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods, and I will make them. Uh, and, and I will make them in the places around my hill a blessing, and I will cause showers to come down in their season, showers of blessing. And the tree of the field will yield its fruit, and the earth will yield its increase, and they will be secure on their land. And then, I will, then they will know that I am the Lord when I have broken the bars of their yoke and have delivered them from the hand of those who have enslaved them. And they will no longer be a prey to the nations. Now, we tend to get these ideas that's going to happen in one punctuated moment in time in history. And all, when we're reading this, we realize that Jesus did come 2,000 years, and he did execute justice, and it was executed on, well, on himself. He became the voluntary living sacrifice for the entire world. And, and yet now, all of a sudden, you see the regathering 
pictures of Israel regathering as a nation again, which we talk a lot about in here and spent some time during the October 7th tragedy about the regathering of the nation of Israel and what has happened and ensued in these last 70 plus years since they became a nation. And what, what is going on here? And well, he came and he, he sacrificed. But then as I look through scripture, when Jewish men and women began to follow Jesus and believe into Jesus, meaning he sent his savior and he's, he's freeing them from their enslavement, it, it gives us a picture that now, this, now the coming of Jesus will not be on a donkey. We're getting closer when Jesus will come back on a horse. Conquering king. He had to come first on a donkey so that not only Israel could be saved, but so that the world could be saved. But then the second time, he doesn't come back on a donkey. He's not in a stable, in a manger with teenage parents. He comes back with his holy ones. And they set all things right, which will be the most glorify, the most glory-filled moment that any of the world has ever experienced and the most awful moment that the world has ever experienced, depending on what you've done with this shepherd king. That's the story of the Bible, and that's what's being played out right before their eyes, but they couldn't understand it. They only saw him as king. And so, as you, if you know the rest of the story, when they realized he wasn't going to be king, and he was, and he was not willing to take that throne yet. He was going to take the form of a an unblemished lamb. Just a week later, that same crowd crucify him. Crucify him. The fickle nature of humanity, in their own self concern. And then verse twenty eight: They will no longer be prey to the nations, the beasts of the earth. In 29, I will establish for them a renowned planting place, and they will not be victims of famine in the land. And then note, notice, and they will not endure the insults of the nations anymore. And they will know that I, the Lord, am with them, and they, the house of Israel, are my people. As for you, my sheep, the sheep of my pasture, you are men. In other words, I'm telling you that I'm not talking about literal sheep. I'm talking about you. And I am your God declares the Lord God. What, what is Ezekiel seeing? Seeing a shepherd king that's going to come and overturn the teaching of the shepherds of Israel and enter into a new place that's going to bring peace and security forever. And that's happening right under your noses, whether you're aware of it or not. We're very connected right on the ground with many Jews and Palestinians and Arabs who love Jesus and they are unified as one new man, as Paul said in Ephesians 2 and 3. In other words, Jesus is beginning to come back to that part of the world. And to me, as I read the scripture, that does usher in his second coming, which will come as king. Suffering servant is over. It was finished on the cross. He won't play that role again. He'll come back as king. Do you know him? Do you know him as king? Have you surrendered the sovereignty of your own life to him? It's a decision only you can answer, make, and it's a question only you can answer. People can see fruit and things like that, but in the end, are, have you submitted? Have you given your fealty to, to, to the king of the cosmos who came first? as a dying, suffering servant. And I'm glad, I'm glad I have, because I don't fear the day of him coming back. In fact, the Bible says to hasten the day of his coming by expanding his kingdom. Well, I can't wait till he comes back. I plead for him to return. But I want to live out my life as if he's coming back. And that's what Church of the Red Door is all about. Let's go forward to Ezekiel chapter 37. Again, I, again, I'm just kind of doing a little run through here so you can just say, wow, is it, all of them are saying the same thing. This Davidic king, this Davidic shepherd, this Davidic, who, who is this? Who, who could this possibly be? Chapter 37, let's start here in verse 24. 
It says, again, he's just talked about the reunion of both Judah and Israel as a nation rather than being two independent, the ten northern. And that's actually happened now in our lifetime. Israel's just one nation. They don't consider themselves the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. In some way, these sticks have been rejoined. It says, my servant David will be king over them, and they will have... Now, remember, you say, well, is David contemporaneous with Ezekiel? No, David's been long dead. He's been dead for 400 years. But he said he's going to take his servant, David, be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd, and they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. And they will live on the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers lived, and they will live on it, and, they, and their sons and their sons' sons forever... And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever, and I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant. Here goes that covenant thing again. A deal. It's a covenant of peace now. He says, I will place them and multiply them and set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place also will be with them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. So what happens is, he's coming back. He's coming back. <laughs> Excellent. Perfect timing. Thank you for that, Lord. We needed that. But, but do you see what's going on? The nations are going to look and see Israel embracing their long-awaited Davidic shepherd king and they're going to be impacted by it. And that's what we've talked about in some of these other series. That if Israel rejected Jesus, this is Romans chapter 11, if by their transgression salvation came to the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be when they recognize Jesus Messiah, but life from the dead, like a global reaction to this? Today, most people say, well, you know, Jews don't believe in Jesus. That's why they're Jewish. I know well, I have... I can introduce you to a lot of Jewish friends who love and believe in Jesus and follow him and believe that he was the fulfillment, the very embodiment of the Davidic king. Okay, let's press forward. Hosea chapter 3, if you're going forward. Hosea and Amos, will fin we're going to look at, and it'll kind of conclude our little jaunt through the Old Testament that we started last week. Now I'm going to take you just a couple places where we finish here in the New Testament. Hosea and Amos are writing about the same time as Isaiah. So now we're actually going back in time, oh, roughly 50 to 100 years uh, from Jeremiah and, and, and then even more from Ezekiel. You know, so Ezekiel's in captivity, Isaiah was writing. So Ezekiel's, you know, in that mid-6th mid century and, and then here we have Isaiah. So this is 100 years removed and before and yet look and see what Hosea is saying here. Hosea. So... Hosea chapter 3, and let's just look at this. And again, what we're, we're looking for clues that the prophets and descriptions of the prophets and how they were defining the Davidic king. It's forever, he's a king, but he's also a shepherd king. Interesting. Chapter 3, Hosea chapter 3. Let's go down here to verse 4. It says, For the sons of Israel will remain for many days, without a king or a prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, and without ephod or household idols. And that actually happened. They were without priests for a long time because their temple had been destroyed. Afterwards, the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. Now, now he's added this whole new thing, the last days. Now I need to take you real quickly back to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Back to 2 Samuel 7. Let's go back to this Davidic covenant. And this is hugely important. A lot of people miss this. It, a lot of people say, well, it was just Solomon. It was, it was all just Solomon and, and, you know, and then didn't quite work out, but that was Solomon. If you go back to the concluding part of 2 Samuel 16 and go down to verse 19, We'll look at 18. It says that, that David the king went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord, and what is my house that you have brought me this far? He was humble. In verse 19, And yet this was insignificant in your eyes, O Lord, for thou hast spoken also of the house of thy servant, the descendant, concerning the distant future. 
You think he'd be saying the distant future if he knew in the spirit that that was going to be just be played out in Solomon's life, who built a literal temple, a literal sanctuary? Or would it be Jesus on into the future, the distant future, who would come back and set up a temple, but this temple would not be built with hands. This temple would be living stones being built up into a sanctuary, a dwelling place, a temple for God and the Spirit. This temple is all over the globe. And it's even in literal Israel today. There are about 30,000 Jewish men and women who are following Jesus, and that's conservative, conservative in the land of Israel today. You say, well, that's not that many relative to the total number. It's more than during the time of Jesus. It's more than during the time of Jesus. These are been, this is being fulfilled right under our noses in our lifetimes. Church of the Red Door is involved in that. Unapologetically. Unapologetically. And then Amos chapter 9. So if you're in Hosea, just go forward to, to Amos. Look, if you're kind of new to the Bible and you're watching this morning or you're here at Church of the Red Door, you're watching online, Look, you may get some of this, not get some of this. What does this really mean? Uh, I just want you to know that we take this seriously. I, I am not a person who likes to be deluded into believing what is nonsense. I want to think thoughtfully and carefully. I, want to, I don't want to commit intellectual suicide just because I want to believe in some kind of magic fairy dust that means I'm going to pop up out of the ground one day and be resurrected. I want good, good reasoning proof that Jesus was exactly who he said he was, and that these actions need to be understood. Why the donkey? Why the parade? Jesus had to have a parade because he was making claim here. He had to have a parade. Amos chapter 9, again, same kind of problem. It's just an indictment of the idolatry in Israel and future. But then there's this beautiful, as we often get with the prophets, there's this beautiful conclusion of a glimpse into the future and listen to how they frame the encouragement through this well it's a guy who tended fig trees and he was mostly prophesying to the northern kingdom at this time again isaiah the contemporaneous with isaiah and amos as well and hosea he says listen to this he goes verse 11 in that day now he's talking about the future don't worry, there's hope. In that day, I will raise up the fallen booth of David. Well, there he goes with David again. What's he talking about? And wall up its breaches, and I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Why? Just, again, you've got to realize he's, he's putting, the prophets keep coordinating this with the nations and not some of the nations, not just the surrounding nations, all the nations. Behold, days are coming, verse 13, when the plowman will overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows, when the mountains will drip sweet wine and the hills will be dissolved and I will restore the captivity of my people Israel, and they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them, and they will plant vineyards and drink their wine and make gardens and eat their fruit and I will also plant them on their land, for they will not again be rooted out from their land which I have given them, says the Lord your God. People are all freaking out. Is Israel going to lose its... Are they going to be... Front, you hear the adage from the river to the sea and, and all this, and, and you know you see these pro-Palestinian marches and things going on around, around the globe. And from the river to the sea, from the river to the sea. Not according to Amos. I think I'll, I'll think I think I'll hang my head on that. I don't know how God does it. They should have gone down in the '67 war. They should have gone down in the '73 war. They should have gone down right right after they were declared a nation. There's no explanation for the existence of the nation of Israel. And again, when I say this, I am not anti-Palestinian, pro-Israel. I am pro-Palestinian and pro-Israeli in the gospel. But if I were to have to ask in a geopolitical standpoint, do I? Yeah, I would like to see a democracy in that part of the world. I would, just as an American. I said this before, and I'll say it again. I'm not apologetic about this. 
I support the existence of the nation of Israel. I, I have to say, I'm, I'm unapologetic about that. Support their right to exist. And no, I don't defend everything that Israel has ever done since their origins is nature. And I, can't even, I don't even pretend to speak into what's going on over there right now. It breaks my heart to see what's happening among just Palestinian mothers and children who are just trying to raise their family. I mean, I can't overlook that. But by the same token, this is a nation state. There's Hamas on their border. and all. I mean, we could sit here and talk about the puppet stage all day long and get inflamed and be infuriated and all that kind of thing. It breaks my heart for the anti-Semitism that's rising right here in the United States. I hate it. It breaks my heart. It's not the heartbeat of God. These are the sheep of his pasture. They may be lost sheep, some, but they are still the brothers, the very covenantal brothers of Jesus. But they have to embrace him as Jesus. The gospel is the same for Jew or Gentile. It goes first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. I'm unapologetic about that, but I see great hope. And when you see Israel becoming a nation again, and when you see the activities on the ground, you know what I begin to I sense in the air? Here's what I sense in the air. There's a king coming back. A king is coming back. And this triumphal entry will not end a few days later in crucify him, crucify him. This triumphal entry will result in every knee bowing and every tongue confessing that Jesus is the king and the Lord of the universe. Now that's good preaching. All right, so New Testament, real quick. Here we go, here we go. Okay, got just a few more minutes here. Luke chapter one. Now with that in, in our brains, right? So, oh man, this triumphal entry is making a lot more sense to me. What were they ex their expectations? Could this be the king? It wasn't David because he had been in war. It wasn't Solomon because the kingdom was ripped away from him. And now you got split kingdoms and this and that. And who could it possibly, maybe it was Hezekiah, Josiah. No, it couldn't be those guys. Was it Asa? Was it, who was it? It, it? This is him because we've seen the miracles. We saw what happened with the blind man. We saw him feed the masses. This has to be him. He's cloaked in power. This is some otherworldly kind of king. Let's give him a parade. What is he doing Ted, what did you do allowing him to be on that donkey? He said he wanted to be on a donkey, but why? He said, this is a kingly parade. He's going to take over Rome. He's, all right, if he wants a donkey, we've understood Jesus to be strange. We, you know, we know who he is, but he doesn't know who he is. Strike that, reverse. They didn't know who he was. He knew exactly who he was. He knew exactly. Luke chapter 1, verse 31. Luke chapter 1, verse 31. Okay, here we go. Just so we can, now, now with this in our brains, we can go, okay, I get it, I get it. Luke chapter 1, verse 31. Uh, listen, to, listen to this. This is very simple. Now, this is Jesus' birth being foretold, right? So we're, uh, April, Gabriel comes down. He's with Mary here. In verse 31, it says, And behold, Mary... He says, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus, uh, or Yeshua in, in Hebrew. And it says, and he will be great, and he will be called the son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Well, see what I mean by punctuated moment? Okay, here he comes. That He's going to give Jesus your son. And she's going to be like, is this real? Am I having a dream? What? What? And she goes on to say, I'm a virgin. I, you know, or Alma in Hebrew, you know, I'm just, I, I've never even been with a man. How is this possible? But I think even more than that reality it's like, what are you talking about? The setting him on the throne? And of course, she had to expect, she had to have the same expectation. So she, she goes back into the temple when they're, he's being dedicated and she gets a prophecy that she's going to have something just going to pierce her soul. That didn't make sense if he's going to be the king. 
Made a lot of sense if he's going to be coming as a suffering servant, though. So we would see that, and they would see that. Oh, he's going to be, he's, he's going to be born, he's going to rise up, and he's going to be the king. True. But there's going to be a long pause, because all the nations have to come. Right? Had there not been that pause, where would we be? Right? Halfway around the world, where would we be? If he was only concerned about the nation of Israel. He'd already, he's gonna, he already had the conversation with Nicodemus before he went to the cross. I didn't come to judge the world. I came to save the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. To whoever would believe in him would never perish, but be able to be part of this ever forever kingdom of the forever king in the line of David. So we see Luke talking about it. Then, then one of the first sermons, Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. It's just so ubiquitous. I don't want us to leave this without really feeling the, at least a large portion of the brunt of how perfect the plans of God were and how much they didn't understand them. It's only with the luxury of retrospect and even your own walk that you will say, this Jesus was God. Acts chapter 2. Let's start reading here about 30. And uh, again, this is the first sermon that will lead on to, you know, being baptized and the first 3,000 being saved. But here's the sermon part of it. It says, verse 30, and so because he was a prophet, talking about David, and that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants upon his throne. So he's saying, you guys are thinking about David. He says, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Jesus, of the Christ, of the anointed one of Mashiach in Hebrew, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus, God, raised up again, to which we are all witnesses, therefore having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth that which you both see and hear. For it was not David. If you're looking for a literal resurgence of David, don't. It was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And of course, now he's quoting uh, again the Old Testament. He says, and, and I'll make a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And that led to, we are guilty. What do we do? And he says, repent, be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And thus the church age begins. Wow. All in the context of, are you still thinking about a literal David? He's still dead. But this king did not suffer decay. Wow. Powerful. Romans 1, two more passages and then we're done. Somebody came up to me last week, several of you, and said, you know, they used to sit for hours and hours listening to this, and we can't even finish. Why couldn't you finish this message? And I said, well, ask your neighbor. I don't know. Uh, so Romans chapter 1, it's, it's, it's just so much. You want know, to just pour out here and give just, you know, I think we've just gotten so desensitized with these little tiny homilies or messages that last 15 minutes, and we don't even hardly remember. This is real. This is accurate to the, to the millis, millimeter. This is perfect. This is beautiful. You don't have to commit intellectual suicide. Believe what you're reading here. Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Meaning, at this point, there's no testament. Meaning what? The Tanakh or the Septuagint, the Greek version, pretty much what they were going after here concerning his son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And again, they're bringing in this idea of the son of God, which is exactly what we got in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So it's not just pulling, you know, here's a bunch of stupid Gentiles and these councils three or four hundred years after the fact making up the, the, the there was this normal Jewish rabbi named Jesus 
who somehow has now been mythologized and made the son of God. Are you with me? No, it's all here and it's all in the Holy Scriptures. And I'm not talking New Testament. I'm talking something, again, that was solidified, codified, if you will, several hundred years before the time of Jesus. And then finally, go all the way to 2 Timothy. Paul's writing to this a pastoral to this young man named Timothy. I hope you get excited. I hope I'm not the only one here excited about this today. Uh, I won't ask you to say amen, but if you would say amen when you get a chance, that would really, really appreciate that. There we go. Okay. Second uh, Timothy chapter two. This is it. Uh, drum roll, please. Second Timothy chapter two. Let's look here at verse eight. Again, he's writing to his young protege, Timothy, and he says, Timothy, remember Jesus Christ. Verse 8, 2 Timothy 2, descendant of David. They keep saying that. Why? Because they understood this Davidic covenant. Because they understood the Son of God language. Because they understood the shepherd king kind of deal. He said, according to my gospel. Right? Part of you telling the story, and I said this earlier, part of you telling the story to your friends who don't know Jesus is this necessary part of it. Him being a descendant of David is part of the story, the gospel story, for which I suffer hardship even to the imprisonment as a criminal, but the word of God is not imprisoned. For this reason, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, that they may obtain the salvation, which in Christ is eternal glory. It's a trustworthy statement. If we died with him, we'll live with him. If we endure, we'll reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us because he's not coming back as a suffering servant. He's already done it. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Look, if you have that in your noggin, if you have that in your brain, and you go, okay, I get it. He needed a parade because he was a king. But equally, and we'll see this in such stark relief next week, I hope it just floors you. But he also need to come as a servant king as a sacrificial son of God, lamb of God. And then that's going to begin to make sense of if, when, Asher, you know, <laughs> if he'll stem. It's going to make sense of that statement if he commits iniquity. It's going to make sense to you in a way I don't think you will have ever really conceived of, uh, or at least if you have, and obviously many of you have, that it'll, it'll deepen your understanding of his sacrificial nature and who he is and how much he loves you. Do you realize how much he loves you? He could have just come as king. And he came as king. But he came to die. So that we could be included in this family. Now that's worth celebrating. And we are celebrating through all this glory up here. His coming. Right now we're talking about his exit, but in, uh, uh, in just a couple of weeks we'll, we'll be celebrating his come, coming to earth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this. I, I, Lord, just, there may be people watching or people right here at Church of the Red Door or something, but he sees this down the road, Lord. I, and they just say, this, it's kind of, it's exciting, but it's a little terrifying. It's only terrifying when you're on the outside looking in. The Bible's clear, believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Or that first sermon that included this, this Davidic line, repent, be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and then you'll receive the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus, help us not make it more complicated than it is. The entry is simple. It was all paid for by you. The donkey riding you the humble servant you. Lord, let us get that through our skulls. It is not based on what we do. It's based 100% on what you did. But once we get it, oh, we'll want to live for you. We want to serve you. We'll want to get a head start because all of eternity will be us in perfect complicity with your plans for all known time, time without end, eternity. We can't even fathom it. Lord, help us get this in our souls. So if you want to give your life to him and you, you fear him coming back as king, you just tell him, Lord, I, I forgive me of my sins. I give you my life. I don't even really fully understand what that means, but I choose to follow you. Tell him that. 
And then tell somebody, be baptized. We'll be happy to baptize you. We're going to be baptizing a lot of folks in February. We'll be happy to baptize you. And uh, well, welcome. Welcome to the kingdom. Welcome to the gracious Shepherd King's sovereign universe. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Thank you.